All right. Good morning. Again, thanks for uh, joining us online this morning. And we look forward to the 28th. Uh, we got plenty of room. Uh, so you're welcome to come on the 28th. We're excited about that. And uh, as Sam mentioned, we're continuing this series called Broken Before Breakthrough and focusing on the breakthrough part of that. And so uh, we're going to talk about the issue of doubt. We talked about that last week. We looked at the story of doubting Thomas uh, and his encounter with Jesus. We're going to dig in a little bit deeper on that today. So talking about the issue of doubt, a lot of us doubt was what led us to Christ. But to be honest, we still have some doubts and questions and things that uh, even in relationship to God are very confusing to us. Is that okay? And how do we deal with the doubt that's in our life? And so I just want to encourage you right now to share with a friend, maybe send it in a messenger or on Facebook or however you're connecting this morning to invite others. At the end of this message, I'll give an opportunity for people to give their lives to Christ. And so if there's someone you've been praying for, someone you've been witnessing to, this might be another added layer to help uh, lead them to Christ. So I invite you and encourage you to invite some others to join with us online. Back in the early 19th century, there was a movement, a philosophy called French rationalism. And it led to a desire for sexual infidelity, sexual immorality, basically saying that you can find truth, not with the senses, but with your own mind to rationalize what is real and what is unreal. And so that led to a a different way of looking at the world, a different way of looking at our lives. And so it swept across the ocean in the early 19th century and landed on the shores of America and became very popular on university campuses. So inquiring, brilliant minds of college students began to pursue French rationalism and all the implications that went along with it. One university in particular, Brown University in Rhode Island, was submerged in this new philosophy and impacted students and teachers across the board. In particular, one who actually was the valedictorian in 1807 of Brown University, a young man by the name of Adniram. Adniram was from Massachusetts. He was the son of a uh, Baptist pastor. And so his Orthodox father had great plans for his son uh, in the area of ministry and life and pursuit of Christianity. But what he didn't realize is that Adniram had a friend named Jacob Eames. Now, Jacob Eames became a rationalist with the French rationalism. And so because of his influence on Adniram, they they thought together, they talked together, they studied together, uh, they roomed together, they partied together, they chased women together. Uh, They just began to live and embrace that lifestyle that came from this idea of rationalism to the point that they denied the truth of Christianity. Even though Adniram had been raised in a Christian home, he negated Christianity as a reality. And so rather than following the pursuits that his father had dreamed for him, Adoniram decided that he wanted to be a playwright. They, he and his friend Jacob wanted to be the next Shakespeare, the first American playwright and actor. And so they began to have those discussions, think along that way. And so after graduation, Adoniram decided that rather than going back home to live with his parents and pursue a job there, he would move to New York and pursue an acting career or playwright career. And so he saddled up his horse and he made his way to New York. And he was about halfway there and it was, he'd been traveling for a while. So he stopped in a small town and found an inn where he could spend the night. Of course, he was exhausted from the road and he got his room, checked into his room, found the bed and crashed. He was exhausted. But he didn't get much sleep that night because 
Uh, right in the room next to him, there was a man who was coughing and hacking and wheezing all night, which may be some of our stories sometime, going to a hotel or motel. And so he didn't get much sleep till in the early hours of the morning, finally the coughing stopped and he was able to get at least a couple hours in. But he woke up the next morning, went down to check out and he asked the desk clerk, he said, what was going on with the guy in the room next to me? And the guy, the clerk just answered with one word, dead. So he was shocked by that and he said, well, so who was he? The clerk said, I, I don't really know. He's a recent graduate of Brown University. His name was Jacob Eames, which was Adoniram's friend, his influencer, the guy that they discussed philosophy and life and eternal life and meaning and purpose and dealt with all the doubts that were before them in this world that they lived in. That statement, that experience so rocked his world that rather than going to New York to pursue an acting career, he went back home, Adoniram went back home to his parents, actually repented of his ways and his pursuit and his sin that he'd been following and returned back to Christ. Well, you probably know his name. He was actually the first American missionary, Adoniram Johnson. So leaving a land of doubt to rediscover Christ changed his world, actually changed our world, changed the world of missions forever. You might be able to relate to that story in some way that you are in that land of doubt. If just to be honest, to say there are some things that I question. There are some unanswerable questions or at least unanswered questions in my mind that cause me stress and anxiety. Some of you may be watching saying, I doubt the existence of God. I doubt that Jesus is how the Bible describes him. I doubt that Jesus died and rose again. These are questions and doubts, and it's important that we deal with those realities that are plaguing our mind and maybe even directing our life as it was Adoniram. But death has a, a way of opening our eyes to what is real, to our own mortality. Even doubt has a place to play in our pursuit of the truth. And we're going to talk about that this morning as we look at the Gospel of John, it, actually the climax of his Gospel, a story we looked at last week where Jesus encounters Thomas, one of the disciples, better known to us as Doubting Thomas. So I want to pick up the story again in John chapter 20, beginning with verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet have believed. So the statement that Thomas made to the disciples here, there are three ways in Greek language to say, I will not believe. In this instance, he chose the strongest one which basically translated says, I refuse to believe. I will not believe except on one condition. I have to see it for myself. I have to touch it for myself. I have to see the scars and touch the wounds to know and believe that Jesus is alive. It's a pretty bold statement. 
It's pretty high demand. But as you see in this story, Jesus responded. Jesus encountered Thomas as the resurrected Lord. He addressed his question, he addressed his issue, and he confronts him with the truth. Again, part of our discussion last week is what would cause a man who walked with Jesus, who saw him perform miracles, who saw him raise from the dead, still doubt? He was overwhelmed with grief, obviously, and skepticism, perhaps. But one of the reasons that I see that led Thomas to this situation was, well, first of all, he was distant from Jesus. Obviously, he knew that Jesus was dead, and so he removed himself from that pursuit, obviously, because of his death. But even he removed himself from the other disciples. He decided to self-quarantine. He isolated himself from his own life group, if you will, in order to face this alone, which can be a dangerous place when we're dealing with doubt or dealing with confusion to remove ourselves to try to figure things out on our own. Thomas had done that, and because of that, he was overwhelmed with doubt, which when you think about it, happens to us too. If we remove ourselves from thinking about Jesus, from developing a relationship with Jesus, when we remove ourselves from church or from our spiritual group, it's easy to be overwhelmed with doubt. We place ourselves in a dangerous situation, which is exactly what Thomas did. And so his confidence began to shrink. He began to doubt the reality of the resurrection, even from his trusted friends. You see, Thomas, because he decided to self-isolate, missed the commissioning of the other disciples. When Jesus first appeared to them, he brought peace. He said the same thing he said here, peace be with you. And when he said that, and when he said it here, it wasn't just peace in the moment. It was peace for all times and all ways is what that word means. So he was coming to instill peace to his disciples from then and from that way forward. Because you and I know as disciples of Christ, discouragement is a reality. It's easy to become discouraged. Many of us have been discouraged through this pandemic. We need the peace of God to be able to carry on and not just to survive, but actually to thrive. He also gave them the power, the Holy Spirit. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, will receive power. Well, that statement is true for us who follow Christ now. We have received the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Trying to live the Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit is like riding a sailboat when there's no wind. We just kind of slowly drift along without any sense of direction. He offered that to his disciples. He also gave them a purpose. You are now my missionaries. You are now to carry on what I started. That's what Jesus does. Jesus gives us purpose. We all question, why am I here? What is the meaning of life? What's next? Is there life after death? We have these questions. Jesus gives us those answers. He defines for us our purpose as he did these disciples, but Thomas missed that first encounter. So now he demands proof. Unless I will, I refuse to believe unless I see him in person. So he makes a demand because of his doubt. Now, I would caution us when we have doubts to start making demands on God. Not a good idea. But it's interesting in this story, even though Thomas made some lofty demands, Jesus responded to his demand. Now, John gives us the nickname or the other name of Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas. That's not in the scripture. That's just kind of a name we've given to him, but his name was Didymus. Didymus means twin. 
And there's a connection in the English language between doubt and twin, doubt and double. So in our day, you know, somebody's having twins, it's all exciting, how awesome, how cute, how wonderful. We love twins, twins are great. It wasn't so in biblical times, especially in the Jewish culture. Because if you understand inheritance and birthright and blessing, that was given to the first male child. Well, if the first male was a twin, there were two boys born, it caused division and jealousy, much in the story of Jacob and Esau. Though Esau came out first, Jacob was close behind and grabbing his heel. And so there was always a battle where Jacob basically coerced Esau out of his birthright and then ultimately stole the blessing from his father. So that was not uncommon to have that battle going on between twins in that culture. And so when you mention the name Didymus in Jewish culture in this time, it was a negative. It meant a struggle. It meant to be double-minded. We see that there's a Chinese proverb that talks about people being double-minded. It's like a person having one foot in two boats that are headed in different directions. Actually, in Guatemala, there's a saying, a person who has a heart that's doubled, who has two hearts, basically, trying to pursue one and figure out which one is right. So this doubt that this story talks about can also create a spiritual double mind. We might say it this way, a person who tries to have one foot in the church and one foot in the world, trying to live and please and serve both, which we know is not possible but yet it creates this spiritual double-mindedness that we're torn in two directions. For example, someone may feel convicted because of Christ, because of the Bible, to realize we are called to help those who are in need. But on the other hand, they wanna be recognized for it. They want an award or some kind of publicity. Or someone says, hey, I wanna to give to this ministry. I wanna to give to this building program. I wanna help support the church, but I wanna want present it on a Sunday morning so all can see me hand you the check. Sounds like a worthy cause and a worthy reaction, but there's something worldly about it when we have those two responses. This is where Thomas was, had been pursuing Jesus, but now is pursuing the world's way of viewing things. Now this double-mindedness of Thomas was not fatal, but it was destructive. It didn't end his relationship with Christ because of what Jesus did. Jesus showed up behind locked doors, another miracle just appears mainly for Thomas, and he let Thomas touch the scars and touch the wounds. He gave him the proof that he demanded. Jesus showed Thomas grace and mercy in this moment. He did not condemn him for his doubts. In fact, Thomas's doubts didn't keep Jesus away. And when he appeared in the room, his first words were, peace be with you. Again, not just in the moment, but for all time. He brought peace into Thomas's life to answer his doubts. And then he says this statement, stop doubting and believe. What a powerful statement. What a powerful statement for us to hear. Stop doubting and believe. Yeah, it was easy for Thomas because he saw Jesus. We who follow Jesus, we've not seen him, though we believe there's enough evidence, enough proof that he is who he says he is. But yet we've not touched him like Thomas. We've not seen him. So it requires faith on our part. Theologian Leslie Newbegin writes this, we live in an age that favors doubt over faith. That's a true statement. 
Our world honors skepticism and doubt, maybe even confusion, atheism, and unbelief is honored more than belief. The question, how can you really know any truth? Faith is not always highlighted in our culture, yet faith is required. The truth is, faith and doubt exist in our world. And doubt does have a place. It's been said of doubt, it is a good servant, but a poor master. So it does have a place. It can lead us to right decisions. It can lead us to discovery. Because if I doubt something is true, then I have to believe there is some criteria by which that thing can be judged. If I say I doubt that God exists, I'm also saying, but there, there has to be a criteria that's led me to that decision by which the reality of God can be judged, which would leave me either confirming my disbelief or acknowledging I was wrong. And that's a great statement for us. What should I believe? And if what I believe is not what I should believe, am I willing to admit that I am wrong? Am I willing to pursue those questions to come to a conclusion and come to an answer? Am I open-minded enough to pursue the questions and to the answers and the doubts that I have? And that's where Thomas eventually ends up. So doubt is to belief as darkness is to light or sickness is to health. It's, it's a part of it, but it leads us to something that is affirming, something that is consistent. Another way to put it, doubt is useful for a while, but we don't want to live in it. We don't want to persist in it. We're permitted to doubt. God allows us to doubt and question. Scripture allows us to doubt and question and struggle with the truth of Scripture, but that it's all meant to lead us to a conclusion to a discovery, to an understanding. John Ortberg put it this way, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. It just doesn't work. And maybe you know some of those people, maybe you are one of those people that just, you just doubt everything. You never come to a conclusion, never come to a truth or an understanding. This is no way to live. So Jesus addresses this experience with Thomas. Hey, you believe because you've seen me. But then he makes a statement about us who follow Christ now. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Again, is what I believe about something what I should believe? Is what I believe about Jesus the right thing to believe? That's a question we all have to pursue and come to a conclusion because the act of defining what I believe actually defines who I am. Finish this statement. I believe this about God. I believe this about reality. I believe this about myself. Whatever your answer is helps identify who you are. I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe that Jesus died and rose again. Therefore, I identify as a Christ follower, a believer in Jesus Christ not just to know he exists, but actually committing my life to following him. I believe that the Bible is the living, breathing word of God. If I say that, then that identifies me as a believer of the word and a follower and obeyer of the word. I believe that 
Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. I believe that Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. He is a mighty warrior. He is my friend. He is my judge. He is my God. Those statements define who we are. If I believe that God doesn't exist, that Jesus is not a reality, was just a fantasy, maybe a a good teacher that lived on this planet Earth, but I do not believe he died for my sins, then that identifies who we are as an unbeliever. For those of us who believe in Christ, the question is, did you always believe? Well, no, (laughs) there was a time of doubting. There was a time of questioning that led us to a discussion to a conclusion, to an understanding of who he is. So doubt actually can be an effective element in leading us to a committed belief, in leading us to the truth. In fact, it is the first step, doubt is the first step on the road to understanding, to belief. So as a Christian, let me ask you that question. Do you doubt? And the church answer is no. No, I I don't doubt. I I don't ever doubt. And if that's the case, then why has this pandemic caused you to be afraid? Why has this pandemic caused you to have stress and anxiety? Why do you regret things in your life if you truly believe the God of the Bible, what Jesus says and who he says he is? If you don't doubt, then why do you question God's ability to get you through this? God's ability to help you find another job, God's ability to heal you, to restore you, to forgive you, to save you. Why do you doubt these things if you don't say that you doubt? It's okay to admit it. Hey, there's a lot about God in the Bible we don't fully understand. And so we have questions. But all this requires faith. Ephesians 2:89. for by grace we have been saved through faith. Faith is the vehicle that leads us to belief. A lot of times we think about the opposite of faith is doubt, but the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty. The opposite of faith is certainty. Look at John 20, 29. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet believe. For example, let's say that I reach into my pocket and I tell you that I'm pulling out a hundred dollar bill, right? But I don't show you, it's in my hand. You can trust me, you can believe me, right? Well, it takes faith because you don't see the hundred dollar bill in my hand. I could be lying, could be making this up or it could be a 10 because you know how many pastors have a hundred dollar bill, right? Unless you're a televangelist or something, but you have to believe on faith of who I am and faith of what I say. All right, so I'm gonna invite the wonderful and talented Michael Glenn to come out, all right? So do you believe I have a $100 bill in my hand? Okay, so doubt, right? (laughs) So faith is required, but if I open my hand, take the bill, all right? Authenticate it, please, look at it. Yeah, smell it, taste it, and give it back. It's virus-free, by the way. Thank you, sir, appreciate that. So there's the proof. All right, so he had faith that I had a $100 bill in my hand, but now he doesn't need faith anymore because he's touched it, he's seen it. Once we have that answer, faith is no longer required. The reason we need faith is because doubt exists. Because we have information, 
we have evidence, we have experiences, we have our testimony, and those things are powerful, but there's always that element that we could be wrong, right? There's always that sense of doubt that exists in our world. Faith and doubt coexist. Faith will no longer be needed at one point. Paul talks about this actually in 1 Corinthians 13, where he's actually writing about the cessation of gifts, but he writes these words, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. So now in regards to God and understanding of the reality of God and of Jesus, there is doubt, there is confusion. We do have questions because it's like looking in a mirror and only seeing a reflection, not seeing the real thing. Then he goes on, then we shall see face to face, which provides clarity, certainty, knowledge. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Well, he's talking here about the return of Christ. Until Christ's return, until we see him face to face, it's like looking in a mirror and seeing the reflection. There may, may still be some questions, some doubts. We don't see the full disclosure, but one day we will. One day he returns and we will have the confidence, the certainty of Jesus. So as we consider that now, as we are called to share our faith and share the gospel, we have our experiences and we have our beliefs. But if our words and our actions don't back up what we say we believe, why would the world trust us? If we say we have a $100 bill in our hand, but there's no evidence to show it, why would they believe? Why would anyone believe? If we say we have seen the Lord, but there's no evidence in our conversation. There's no evidence in our lifestyle to back up that statement. Why would an unbelieving world believe in God? This is the burden that's placed on the church for us to speak the truth and live the truth, to demonstrate the reality of who God is. And the truth is our actions will always speak louder than our words. We have to demonstrate words are necessary. Words are important. So in regards to our doubts, if you have doubts, admit it. If you have struggles and questions, admit it and ask them. Ask them of God, ask them of other believers. Thomas doubted and Jesus gave him a personal experience. I truly believe if you ask those questions and pursue those doubts, looking for an answer, using them to lead you to an answer, Jesus will do for you what he did for Thomas. He will give you a personal encounter with him. This is how we know that he is real. Again, faith is required. In fact, Craig Rochelle, pastor of Life Church, said this about doubt. It is the first step on the road to belief. Admit your doubts, but realize it's a part of the process. God will grant us discoveries on the road to belief. God wants you to believe. God wants you to trust in him. He will reveal himself in his time and his way along the road. As long as you are pursuing, seeking the Lord with your heart and with your mind, with your emotions and with your intellect. He also says everyone can choose committed belief. It is an option to commit to believing, which doesn't just mean you know he exists, but you've placed your faith and trust in him. And I talk to people all the time say, well, I, I can't really come to Christ. I'm not ready. I still have questions. I still have doubts. Awesome. So do I. There's still struggles that I have, and I've been a Christian for a long time. 
Just because you have questions and doubts doesn't mean you can't come to Christ. Adoniram did, Thomas did, and he responded. I believe there is enough evidence for you to believe in the truth of Jesus Christ. But the best way to understand Christ, the best way to pursue answers to your questions and your doubt is to begin a relationship with him. I mean, think about your own spouse or maybe your best friend. You didn't know everything about them when you started the relationship. But in relationship, you began to know each other more in deeper ways. The same is true with Christ. You don't have all the answers. You still have doubts. It doesn't mean you can't start a relationship with him today. And in that relationship, God will begin to answer those questions. He'll begin to settle those doubts. Begin our, our faith is not in answers. Our faith is in him. He will reveal himself and make himself known to you. If you look at verse 30 of chapter 20, as John concludes his gospel, this is what he writes. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not included in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the sent one, the anointed one, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. One of the reasons we have the word of God is that we might believe. We have our personal experience with Christ. We have the word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have others who have shared faith with us that we might have the evidence enough to believe, which is the foundation of Christianity. But that's where our journey starts, to believe in the reality of Jesus, his death and his resurrection. Thomas was fortunate. The disciples were fortunate. They got to see the resurrected Jesus. We don't see him with our human eyes, but we know that he is real. That assurance, that confidence is available for you today. It starts simply with a prayer. All you have to do is pray that, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that three days later God raised you from the dead. And because of that, my sins can be forgiven. My life can be made whole. And if you're willing today to admit that you are a sinner, that you have rebelled against God, you have done things that the Bible calls sin, and you're willing to confess those sins and confess that you're a sinner, but turn away from them to follow God, then you can be changed today. You may still have questions, you may still have doubts, but you'll be on a road to discovery. If today you will cry out to Jesus Say, Jesus, I am inviting you in my life today to be the leader of my life, to take control of my life, and to forgive me of my sins, to be my leader and my forgiver. The Bible says that if you invite Jesus into your life today, he will come in. He will not say no. He will not say wait a while. He will answer immediately. He will respond just like he did to Thomas. He will respond the same way to you. And if you pray that prayer or something like that today, I want to ask you to put that in the comments. Let us know, whatever platform you're on today, let us know that you prayed a prayer today inviting Jesus into your life. Because there are next steps that you need to take. You have began a journey, a journey of faith that will lead to you to many other questions and many other discoveries and many other experiences. But I just want you to know that Jesus loves you and we love you. 
And next to posting your comments, you need to join a local church. If you're in this area, we'd love to have you come check out First Burleson. If not, you need to find a church that can help you be- carry on this journey you just started. If you don't know how to find a church, let us know. We can help you find one in your area. But I just want you to know, just be reminded that Jesus is ready to respond to you. And he will respond in love and confidence. And just like he said, his disciples with peace. I can't think of a, another time in my life that I've needed God's peace more than right now. And it's available to you. You pray with me. Jesus, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for saving us. And I pray that, that right now all over the planet, as preachers and churches are having worship services online and some even in person, that today that we would hear thousands of people have claimed Jesus as the leader and forgiver of their lives. Man, what a great day, Father, to be able to celebrate that you allow us to come to you, even with our questions and our doubts and our confusion, and you settle our minds and you settle our hearts. And you say, it's okay. It's okay that you have, we'll deal with this together. But Jesus remind us we can't deal with him alone. Thomas tried it, it didn't work. It wasn't until he encountered you, it wasn't until he came back to his fellow disciples that he discovered the reality of the resurrected Lord. Father, I would pray that whatever it takes right now for people to turn to you, that you would allow that to happen. That they would sense your invitation to come and join with you, to join your church, to be one of your children. And God, may may your peace ring throughout the earth today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.